Hello and welcome back to Rewildology, the show that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell-Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. Oh, the Mediterranean Sea, one of the busiest bodies of water in the world. Between cargo vessels, expensive yachts, and cruise ships, it's hard to imagine there being enough room for megafauna to live. And you're not totally wrong if you feel that way, as the Mediterranean Sea cetaceans aren't doing that well. However, this sea's whales and dolphins have allies by their side, doing the hard work to understand their ecology, the threats they are facing, and finding ways to make their lives easier. To teach us about cetaceans in this famous sea, today we are sitting down with Aylan Akaya, PhD, Director of Marine Mammals Research Association, DMAD, Marine Mammal Consultant of WWF Turkey, and Research Director of Montenegro Dolphin Research. Aylan knew from an early age that she wanted to be a biologist when she grew up and spent her university years traveling across the globe studying animal behavior and ecology. After stints in Australia, Asia, and Africa, she returned to Turkey to pursue a PhD studying dolphins in the highly trafficked Istanbul Strait. During grad school, she realized she discovered a gaping hole in science and decided to fill it by launching her NGO, DMAD, Marine Mammals Research Association. Since this launch, Island and her team have recorded over seven years of whales and dolphin sightings and behaviors in the eastern Mediterranean Sea and are starting to show what cetaceans are experiencing in this part of the world. Island and I have a fantastic time discussing her love for nature as a child, stories about her research abroad, everything cetaceans are facing in the eastern Mediterranean Sea, what it's been like for her as the first Turkish woman biologist pursuing this work, how we can help save and protect cetaceans while visiting the Mediterranean seas, and her hopes for the future. All right, everyone, please enjoy this educational and personal conversation with Aylan. Well, hi, Aylan. Thank you so much for sitting down on the Rewildology podcast today and highlighting a very special group of animals for the European large carnivore series. And I couldn't, the series wouldn't be complete without your work and your story and what you're doing. So let's just dive in and introduce you to everybody. What is your story? What influenced you to decide to do what you're doing today? Uh, first of all, thank you for uh, calling me in for this podcast. I think this is a great opportunity for us to spread the word of what we are doing in this one of the least studied region of the Mediterranean Sea as well. So I think whoever likes marine biology, zoology, any type of biology, if you have a story from childhood, and I'm no different, you know, we start, you know, getting exploring with the parents and you just have this deep love for nature. And it doesn't necessarily to be for a specific animal, but just, uh, you know, the planet is amazing and full with wonders. So we just grow up keeping, keeping that child wonder in mind. So I did my uh, bachelor degree on biology in Turkey. And then later I moved to Australia to do my master degrees. And I worked on environmental science and animal behavior. I always have the keen interest fully to the behavior, you know, because what I feel like if I sit and watch them, if I just sit and observe them, I get pieces of 
myself in them, you know, I'm like, oh, this now it makes sense, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I just like to sit, be quiet, and just observe what's happening around. So I'm just a curious being, and I just want to understand what's my place on earth. And for me, what makes the what gives me the best explanation? Books are obviously important, but having that knowledge, learning it about it, and actually like just wandering out is the reason why I started. So I was a curious child and I stayed as curious, not child anymore, but doesn't matter. So after I completed my degrees in Australia, I, and I, I worked in different parts of the world. I was in Asia, in Africa, trying to understand the behaviors of different animals. So I didn't only work on cetaceans in the past. Cetaceans actually was my last stop, but it really? was my first stop. Yes. <laughs> so I worked with frogs, with bears, with gorillas, with sea turtles, you know, anything that catch my wonder. And then, then I did my PhD on the interaction of dolphinid species within one of the busiest waterways of the world. Istanbul Strait is a really tiny waterway that connects the Black Sea with the Mediterranean Sea. We have three important species over there, Bottomless Dolphin, Common Dolphin, and Harbor Porpoises. They're all threatened thanks to us, so their population is declining. And because Istanbul is such an important place geographically, politically, culturally, you know, it's just a big cosmopolitan city, uh, I thought it would be a really good site to study and to see what's happening with those animals in, the, in this uh, waterway. So it's not only important economically, and it's you know for the for the policy and decision makers, it's always important to have the economy upon the scale, which makes sense. We all need money, uh, but sometimes it, it is what is inside that water is actually more important. What is under that water? So and how the water benefit all of us as well. This place has like 2,000 vessels per day. So wow. only in one day, 2,000 cargo ships can cross that tiny little waterway. And we have three important species that are declining in the area. So I wanted to look what is the interaction between the dolphins and the marine traffic. You know, like, are they like toughen up? Like now the dolphins are like, yes. You know, they can handle with that pollution, with the traffic, with the noise, because they are really sensitive as well. And I wanted to check how it affects their behavior. So there was my PhD, and after I completed my PhD, uh, I started up an NGO called Dumont Marine Mammals Research Association in Antalya, which is east of Turkey, and try to see what is up there. Because before we started the NGO, there was no previous dedicated uh, effort in the area. And knowledge is our only key. Yeah? If we, don't, we, we only care what we know about. We only protect what we know about as well. So our goal was to increase the knowledge in the location that we can say, wait, we actually have some animals here. Because when you look at the map of the Mediterranean Sea, cetaceans are like, not just cool animals, you know, everyone loves them. They're like, woohoo, whales in the area, dolphins, I see dolphins. It gives, because they're also spiritual for our human eyes. So it makes us all like connected to the sea. So they are like a key species to get connected with the oceans and the seas. 
but it's also really important for the marine ecosystem as well. So uh, like put the feelings they give to us to the side. Having them in our waters means that actually our waters are important. The biodiversity is, is rich in the area. So there is a nutrient cycle in the location as well. And there's fish species, which is also economically important too, in the location. So they indicate where the habitats are important and where the protections are needed. But unfortunately, when we have marine protected areas, it is one of the last species that is considered to have a protected area. So this is not just for Turkey, this is globally. We just find them cute, but we don't put the enough effort that actually we can use them as an indicator to say that this habitat is important to protect. And then having the marine protected areas by using the dolphins or whales as important species is actually easy because also we can advertise, we can advocate saying that this is an important area because we have seen whales, we have sperm whales in the location. So that's why I went to the Eastern Mediterranean Sea of Turkey uh, and I started up the NGO knowing that the only information that's important is research, is coming from research and coming from science. So that's why we started up dedicated research effort in the location and we do the seasonal visual and acoustic surveys to understand what is happening with the animals over there. And uh, after a while, we started up a branch in Montenegro, which is in South Adriatic, to, because this is also one of the least studied regions of the Mediterranean Sea mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. So our goal is to go to the places where there is little or no information before, that we can gather that information, and then we can say that we can come up with a scientific conclusion saying that this area is important because of this, this area is, uh, there's a threat, we, we need to do something with this, and we, need, we are trying to increase the local capacities, citizen science activities, because the laws, you know, regulations and laws are in the paper, but what needs to change is in the mind and in the heart. So what we are trying to do is to reach to the people from bottom to top, to the decision makers, to the fishers, to the tourboat captains, anyone, to explain them why the cetaceans are important for their own benefit as well. So this is what we are trying to do at the moment. <laughs> yes, you, you sure are a busy woman. You have not, <laughs> you've been really good at just hitting all the things and tackling this really amazing amount of stuff, which is super exciting, which we'll dive into right now. So. Teach us about the Mediterranean's marine mammals. What, I guess, I guess maybe first it just makes sense. What is even there? Because I think a lot of people, when they think of the Mediterranean, they think, you know, sunsets with wine and beautiful and beaches. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But not necessarily as a rich, biodiverse ecosystem that, that hosts some amazing cetaceans. So yes. please maybe start going to some of the research. What is there? And maybe it teaches a little bit about them too and how they live. Okay. So if we are looking globally, there's a lot, 90 different species of cetaceans. And like around 60% of them are threatened by the OCN red list. So 
their population is declining one way or the other. And 60% is quite a large number, you know. Uh, but when we come to the Mediterranean Sea, it's actually even worse because 100% is declining. So we wow. have like, yeah, it's quite sad. And because it's, it's not like an ocean, you know, it's an enclosed sea. So the effect we put stays inside. So it doesn't disperse easily. Uh, we have around 20 different species in the Mediterranean Sea. And if you are on the Western and Central Mediterranean Sea, the biodiversity of cetaceans and the population number is higher. But this might be just a result of dedicated research effort because cetaceans are studied since like 1980s in the Medi, like, of course, there's previous research as well, but systematic surveys are started around like 1980s. And Spain, Italy, France are really good, you know, they have like continuous survey efforts there. They have multiple years of studies. So they have a more accurate picture than what I see for my regions at the moment. And now you look at the map of species distribution, you can see that all the way up until to the central Mediterranean Sea, it's like cetacean heaven. We have sperm whales, whistle dolphins, fin whales, big whales, all different kinds of delphinids, so it's quite rich. But after central Mediterranean Sea, so you just draw a line from Italy all the way to the end of Turkey, it's just nothing. Mm. But this nothing is actually represented by the research effort more than if the animals are there or not. Before we start, sadly, before we start our NGO in 2015 in Turkey, there was no dedicated research effort in the entire Eastern Mediterranean Sea, no, except Greece. In the entire Eastern Mediterranean Sea, not only for Turkey, but if you go all the way down, you know, it's like there's no data. The information is coming from stranded animals and opportunistic, opportunistic sightings. So if someone is on a fishing boat, they're fishing, and then they randomly encounter an animal, and luckily they report that. But there wasn't a dedicated research effort in the area. And that's why we went in to fill the gap with a really tiny uh, resources we have. But we are all a team of dedicated women, I like to underline, that put all the time and effort and resources voluntarily to, to do the project. Because we need to know what's happening in our waters as well. So in the eastern Mediterranean Sea of Turkey, we know that there is eight different uh, species of cetaceans. So we have sperm males, which is, you know, highly liked by the public as well. But they're also really endangered too because ship strikes, marine traffic, they form a big threat on the populations. So in the entire Mediterranean Sea, it's estimated that there's like 300 individuals left for the sperm males. So 300 uh, adults, which is such a low number, you know, it's like... Because uh, they're also long-lived animals too. For them to reach the maturity, it takes time. So it's not going to be like, okay, there's a new baby uh, born and then they can reproduce in five years. That's not the case. We need to wait like 15 years, 20 years for to have the firstborn. And then they need to take care of the firstborn. And then it could be four to five years, they breed again. So it, the interval is quite large. So any decline on the population has a really terrible impact for the survival of the species, which is really important. We also have curious beaked whales. Beaked whales are really shy animals. 
They really don't like noise pollution in the area. They are so sensitive to sound. And right now, you know, the traffic video at sea, uh, the drilling video to get whatever we want to get under the sea, the oil and gas, Navy practices, everything puts extra pressure to the habitat. And like I said, because Mediterranean Sea is a close, almost close sea, the noise cannot spread. It just comes back again, you know, it's just echoing inside. And that's why there is a big decline on the population as well. But uh, there is a region which is known as one of the most protected MPA, Pelagos. There they show the increase in their numbers, which is really nice because they have the mitigation and conservations and all those stuff. But when we look at the Eastern Mediterranean Sea, because there is no knowledge, we don't also know what's the impact as well. So we don't know if the populations are increasing, decreasing, like are, is this their home range? Is, are they just living here? Are they going somewhere else? So there's a big knowledge gap. So that's why the research is quite important. But big whales are declining as well. Uh, and they're the deepest diving mammals, which is really important. Sperm whales are the biggest shooted whales. So that's also really important too. We have females. And other than the females, we have the delphinid species, bottlenose dolphins, common dolphins, striped dolphins. We have a, a humpback dolphin as well, which is assumed to come from the CH channel. I don't know if I'm saying pronouncing it right, but so it's it's an alien species, let's say. It's coming. It doesn't belong to Mediterranean Sea. So we have one extra species right now, and yeah, so false killer whales. So it is actually quite high, you know, like the number of different species that exist in the area. But still, we know such a little information about even the baseline information is missing in the area. So we just started. Even though it's an NGO for seven years, you may think like, wow, seven years is good, but it's not. It's just, you know, it's a little peak to their lifespan at the moment. Yeah, I mean, especially considering how <laughs> you're going to areas where there's been no research. So even getting the baseline, just like you said, it's going to take years. But I mean, if anyone's going to do it, it's you. <laughs> I believe yeah. your, your passion, your dedication, you will find the answers. And with that being said, I'm sure, though, that there are some maybe common themes that are popping up that you're starting to like piece together that maybe you're seeing over year, year after year or something like that. So with that, what are you seeing as maybe some of the top threats? You've kind of hinted to some, but what what is actually threatening the cetaceans in the Mediterranean Sea? Is it pretty homogenous across the whole sea or is it very regional or yeah what are you seeing in the water yeah so for like to have an actual definite answer we need to do a threat assessment but what i am so we didn't do the assessment but yes we are working on it but what do i see is the threats are not homogeneous you know it's like it changed by the country by the location, uh, you know, by the resources of the country as well, and with the knowledge too. So the more west you go, there's more control, obviously. There's uh, less unregulated and uncontrolled activities because there's more patrolling happening 
they are on the western part of the Mediterranean Sea. But eastern part of the Mediterranean Sea is at the moment is unfortunately having a home for unregulated and uncontrolled human pressure as well, because we don't know what's there, you know? So it's like, let's say that the governments are having the best intentions, let's assume. Still, we don't have the enough background to tell them, okay, we need to protect this for these citizens, for this threat. So that's why the research is the heart for an actual protection that actually makes sense and that minimize the population decline that the species are facing now. But what do I see? So for the coastal species like dolphins, for example, bottlenose dolphins or harbor porpoises, you know, there is a habitat destruction. So we are building hotels, five-star hotels, the luxury marinas on the coastline and everywhere. And we, we just, you know, we say that, okay, there is the, we already checked if there's an environmental impact assessment, but for me, like, who are doing those environmental impact uh-huh. assessments, uh-huh. you know? Are they really researchers in the field, or is it just, you know, <laughs> how can we trust it? Yes. Right. <laughs> so, because, the, unfortunately, money always wins. We are never living in a world that money is the only power, not the knowledge at the moment. So, that's why it's like, Uh, It's important to spread the knowledge that, look, you know, in the long run, this is not good. Because we have blue economy as well, you know. The the water can still bring money or the land as well. We just need to manage it smartly rather than thinking short-term benefits. And right now, it's all about short-term benefits. For the coastal species, we have habitat destruction. We are putting bridges in everywhere without thinking what would be the cost of it. We are changing the current system uh, of the oceans, of the seas, the waterways, everything. So uh, there is a really important effect. We have fishery practices as well. They are, uh, unfortunately, even though it might be illegal because there's no patrolling system or there's no strong patrolling system, they can still do what they want to do, you know? So if they are not coastal, so if it's on the coast and the coast guard will get them. But what happens in the deep sea is a big question mark. Right. So, and they always say that, you know, we don't like dolphins because they, they eat our fish. First of all, it was their fish. Yeah. It belongs <laughs> to anyone. <laughs> yeah. But the, so a dolphin will eat like five kilo, uh, five, five kilo in a day, you know? So I can eat five kilo fish in one meal. So considering that a dolphin is like 400 kilo, five kilo is nothing. So it's like, it's not the reason why the fish stocks are declining are because of dolphins. It's because we are greedy humans. We just want to keep consuming. So the decline on fish stocks are really important as well. The other thing is marine traffic. So the because right now, there's no silent spots left in the Mediterranean Sea. Mm-hmm. Wherever we also do, we also carry on an acoustic study. So we have a hydrophone, we put it in the sea, and we monitor what the cetacean species are in the area, what are their vocal behavior, and which kind of noise we are recording there as well. Even if we see no vessels, you know, we, because we go like 50 miles out at sea, and we don't see any any traffic in the location, we, we can still hear the engine, 
So there's still the engine going on, even if we don't see the the actual ship over there. So the noise pollution is not good because the the cetaceans are not trusting their eyesight. They are trusting what they see. They live with the echo. And it's imagine you are you are in a pub, yeah. And then if the pub gets really loud, you start talking louder, speaking louder. And then after one point, you are like, okay, this is enough. I just need need to leave this pub and go somewhere silent. For them, they cannot go somewhere silent. So they just got stuck. They just need to, but luckily they are smart animals. So they just need, they are adapting to the situation. It's already known that some species are starting to produce sounds in a louder frequencies, uh, not the frequencies, sorry, louder decibels. This way they can be heard by the other member of the society. And also it's not just uh, the communication between them, the, the how they find food, how they find their direction, how the mother and calf keep their connection. These are all strictly limited with the sound they produce. And if it's loud and noisy, then they can lose each other. And this happened in the past in locations where there's a seismic activity taking place, the mother and calf can get separated. And if they get separated, calf has no meaning of survival and they will die. And this this already happened in the Mediterranean Sea. So it's showing that there is too much noise under the under the surface. Uh, what else? So the marine plastic, the debris drifting in the water is microplastic is already everywhere we know this but also the the you know the balloons the plastic bags a couple of months ago we had a survey in the Istanbul Strait and we had one juvenile bottlenose dolphin got stuck on a big plastic bag you know mm -hmm. so the blowhole where they're supposed to breed is closed and like you know she was trying to save itself from the plastic bag out that's how how much plastic is all over the water. So there is wide range of human impact and uh, human pressure. But to understand what is the dimension of these threats, we need to study each threat one by one per the species. Because maybe the hotel, the, like building a hotel on a coastline, may not affect sperm whales, but it does affect the bottlenose dolphins. Or maybe a cargo ship passing may not affect the bottlenose dolphins because they are coastal and their frequency range is fine for this. Sperm whales actually does get affected from shipping lines. And they find out that I think like almost 10% of standings are actually related to the ship strikes, which is quite oh, wow. high. Yeah. So it's, it's a tough, tough water. <laughs> yes. That's a lot going against our cetaceans in the Mediterranean. So is there, is there any areas that are doing it right? I guess what I'm trying to ask is, in your view, that is so many factors. How do we start to change the narrative to make lives for cetaceans a little easier in the Mediterranean. What do you feel as maybe some answers or some solutions that can help steer the ship essentially in the mm. right direction to help with our cetacean yeah. marine mammals? I think the key is always education. You, you know, like we need to have a 
better minds that they can just think, not memorize what's written in the book, but they can have a judgment by themselves saying what is right, what's wrong, you know? It's, I think, it's, for me, it's silly enough to repeat single-use plastic is no, you know? Come on, you know, we are talking, if it's like 20 years ago, I understand. We can talk about this, but now it's like everyone has their phone, they're all up to date with the knowledge because it's right with a button, you click on it. So we shouldn't keep repeating what's already known. Let me look at the previous strategies, what it worked and what it didn't work on marine protection. Is you know, whenever the regulations comes from the top, from the decision makers to the bottom, to the stakeholders, let's say the fishers or whoever is using the location, it fails because the fishers feel like they're outside of that circle. They just need to obey the rules. And no one likes the rules, you know? It's just, it's already, we get cold-handed already. So I think whatever that needs to be done has to be done all together. So the, the hotel owners, the fishery cooperatives, the tourists, our kids, everyone needs to be aware of the importance of the protection in the long term, because it's actually going to be economically beneficial to them, as well as the animals as well. With this COVID, you know, I thought it would be a great example for us, because in two years, we just got stuck. It's a tiny little virus put us in their house and the money couldn't save us. You know, we couldn't, the, the planes couldn't fly, which was amazing for the uh, wildlife, by the way. But we, we are so weak, you know, we think we are really strong, but actually human species are not that strong as much as we think. We just, we are sensitive. And we just need to get this as an example that the nature is always stronger than us. And, you know, it's going to win us, doesn't matter. So we just need to be on its side for our own health and own benefit as well. And it's just the knowledge. We just need to spread the knowledge that actually we don't need regulations. We don't need more protected areas because we should protect it anyway. So this shouldn't be coming by force. We should have the need of protecting it. And I think that's why we need to reach to the kids. The, you know, the adults, we already have our own mind and it's difficult to change it. But with kids, we can shape them for the future and they will be running the future soon. So hopefully we will have enough tools to educate them in the right way. Because if there's, basically, if there's no dolphins, there's no us as well. We are all connected. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, and it's funny that you bring up kids because I've that's been a very common theme that I've found throughout multiple different interviews with different NGOs that have started up where it's not that they want to ignore the older generation. It's just sometimes that is the hardest one to get through to. But when you've worked in an area and in a location for like 10, 20 years, that kiddo that you influenced when they were, you know, in grade school are now they're part of the community and making decisions and they have that conservation ethos built into them already. It's yeah. really amazing how quickly our kids grow up. And I think sometimes it's, it's easy to forget that to be very short sighted. It's like, Oh, I should probably sit down and which again, this definitely needs to be done like workshops and webinars, you know, just getting everybody together and getting the voices out there. That is very important. 
But if a lot of effort is put into that 10 year old in 10 years, that 10 year old is going to be 20 and they're going to be making a whole lot of decisions that's going to be good or bad. And again, yeah. it's, it's how, the, how they're influenced. So yeah, I love that yeah, you bring definitely. that up. <laughs> Definitely, like it's like you know, it's a cliche now that everyone says, but it's true. Kids are our future, you know. It's like all our planet, everything depends on those kids. And obviously, we didn't do a great job, I think, because now where the world stands is it's just you know going crazy. But hopefully, they will see our mistakes and they won't repeat it. And hopefully, we will play an important tool on it too to give the best we can. That's why we do like, for example, both in Turkey or Montenegro, we do dolphin watch tours. And for example, do it with the disadvantaged kids, you know, with the, with the kids who doesn't have the, how do you say, the enough freedom to do whatever they like to do or enough love in their life as well. We take them out with the board and try to show them the wonders of the world. You know, it's like, it, like, Seeing them is really magical. Like I study with them for over 15 years, and each time when I have an encounter, I'm just like, oh, look at that. So it always makes me really happy and excited and curious as well. So and seeing that the kids also have the same feeling and even more, you know, they get so excited and so happy. And I'm hoping, hoping that they will carry that feeling with them. You know, they wouldn't forget that. This is actually bringing me another topic that I really want to touch base is so we, we call, you know, dolphin parks or, you know, the dolphinariums where those amazing, really smart and socially really talented animals in a tiny little cages, doesn't matter if they're 50 kilometers, but it's still small because those animals can travel quite high distances, you know. We put them in a pool with concrete that their only communication with the world is sound. And that sound is just echoing back to them. And they get depressed. They get stressed out. They show behaviors that they don't show in the wild. So these dolphin parks or dolphinariums are basically a fancy way of staying prison. But those animals had no guilt. You know, they didn't do anything wrong. We just, for the economical benefits again, we just said we keep those dolphins because they are good. They are good for you know therapy. This is not. There is no scientific knowledge. There is not even one scientific knowledge backing up that dolphins are good for you know for therapy. If you touch a cat, it will give you the same therapy as well. You know. If you just I don't know like if you see a bird flying on the sky, you will get peace as well. So it's not the magic of dolphins. It's the magic of the wildlife and we cannot force them in captivity just because we think it's educate it gives them education it cannot provide any kind of education they are in prison is it normal that we get information about humankind by saving the people in prison do we say do we show the same behavior no so it's like it's same thing so when we have this amazing blue planet we don't need any kind of captivity we just need to protect what we have in our wildlife. And that's why we need more local effort. And that's why we need resources to be distributed almost equally in any part of the world. This way we can do the research as well as much as the, you know, 
I really don't like the term developed, but it is, let's say it that way, that we need resources, we need capacities, we learn, we need to learn new techniques and all those stuff to employ it in the regions that is least preferred to study. Because it is difficult, you know, as a woman, I struggle a lot to work in the, in Montenegro or in Eastern Mediterranean Sea of Turkey, because there is still, you know, sea belongs to the man. That's how the mind carries on. And they're always like, you know, you can't do this because it's tough. Sea is really, you know, are you going to puke if the weather is really tough? Like, no, you know, if you think, maybe I do, but I, this is not going to be because I'm a woman, it's because I'm a human. Right. So, yes, that's why as an NGO, we get so many women researchers to the board with us, just to educate them, not like on our research techniques and everything, to increase the number of researchers who are, you know, who can run their own research independently from any other's help if it's needed of course that would be another scenario but it is really important to have the local power in the places where there's uh, not enough knowledge i love that you bring this up because you pretty much just lobbed my next question to me which is absolutely perfect so i view you and your organization as part of the solution like you are going out there getting the research but you're also engaging the community a lot and i mean a lot and you just kind of started to bring a couple hints here and there so let's actually get into that a little further take me on a normal day on the ship what is it like what research are you doing and how are you engaging and maybe either like a biologist on a local level or even bigger like i know you do citizen science like all the things so let's let's just go into that what do well, I guess what does DMA do? Like, what do you do? <laughs> yes. For lack of better terms. <laughs> okay, so we are actually trying to cover everything you just said. So we have citizen science platforms. But I actually just got an email today from a sailor who encountered a spam mail with a propeller mark right below the fin. So uh, the individual got scarred, unfortunately. But l- luckily, it healed and better. So I wouldn't have this information if that sailor is not sending it to me, you know? So it's really important to build a mutual trust that the information they send to me is going to be fully used on the benefit of nature and nothing personal is happening there. So I think we have a really good base in Turkey or in Montenegro that people trust us, you know? They send us their sighting, their information. So to be honest, we don't have the budget to have a apps on our phone that they can just upload their sightings and everything. But this doesn't stop us. We just give them our, you know, private numbers that they can reach us, our emails. And they do get the trouble and then write all these emails, coordinates, pictures, everything, and they send it to us. With this, we got so many important sightings that we wouldn't know if they didn't send us those information. So I think citizen science is really important. Because now there's more people at sea than in the past, you know, like, like people are having a speedboat, sailing boats, they are cruising out. So it's important that we get those information from them and also with fishers. So what we do in Turkey, we have this tiny little GPS trackers and because we have a good connection with the small fishery, 
we can put our GPS trackers on their board. And then we tell them, look, you know, this is not going to have a negative impact for you. We just need the data to see what is the overlap, you know? Are you using the same habitats with the bottomless dolphins or any other species? And they were really happy, you know? They just, they're like, yes, put the GPS and let me know, tell me if there's any interaction. So, so when you sit with them and if you respect them, they will respect you back. But if you act like you're above them, you know, I'm a scientist. Then right. they don't like that. No one likes that. No. <laughs> yes. So we, we go and, you know, have a, have a coffee with them. And then we start chasing about, like, how was their catch? Uh, is everything is going fine with their life? You know, we just keep talking. And then they to tell us if there's any bycatch, if there's any dolphins they've seen in that day. So they just give the information willingly. And when they get the knowledge that, wait, actually dolphins just get like five kilo in a day. It's okay, you know, because they discard like more than five kilo in a day than the actual total catch. So they're like, wait, but I thought they were eating like tons of fish. I'm like, no, they don't, you know. So if you speak with them, they're actually open. So it's not like, no, I'm going to go and get all the dolphins. So if you actually give them a gun and tell them, I'm talking about the small scale fishery, the you know artisanal fishery with the tiny boats, with the tiny nets. If you give them a gun and if you tell them go shoot dolphins, they won't, because they also feel like they are immor- they are spiritual animals. In Turkey, they have a saying: if you kill a dolphin, all your luck will be backwards. So you will you will lose your luck you will lose all your catch so it will be really bad for you and for your family so they don't really kill the animals because they're also scared from the bad luck it will bring if they kill a dolphin but big scale fisher is obviously a different story with the big trawlers because they are just doing it for the economical purpose of it of it most scale fishers like they are connected to the sea their grand grand grandfathers were also fishing so they have more, they are more sentimental with the sea than the big scale fishery. So artisanal fishery put the GPS that we provide to them and they, then we can track them and we can monitor their activity, what time they go, how they come back, which provide us a really important information from Turkey as well. So citizen science and the involvement of stakeholders is really important. We give constant trainings and we report writing and all those skills to the international students and also local students as well. So we have like YouTube videos to show how to do GIS. Uh, we, we give like training on how to understand what is noise, what is animal. So we have multiple wide range of trainings we provide. And in Turkey, because we have seasonal survey efforts, so what we do is we have a great skipper with a really nice sailing board that we go out for like 20, 25 days and we work 24 hours. So basically we are at sea nonstop except to get the fuel on and out. And we just monitor the sea covering the entire coastal and deep sea waters of the of Turkey. And we use visual method and acoustic methods before this search. So we are like two, three expert experienced researchers and we can get five more uh, students with us. So we get five other students 
and we prioritize women over men, but it doesn't mean that we don't reject the man application. If we have women, we really like to get them because this will provide them additional income and also a strength that they can actually make a difference as well. So in each survey, we get five researchers. This could be student, early career researcher. So actually in this survey, we had a researcher. She was 16 years old. Mm. She's really dedicated. And she finished the 21 days, you know. Uh, and we go day and night, like I say, and they learn a lot of theoretical and practical knowledge in that survey duration. And I think up until today, we had over like 500 students that internationally and nationally that we wow. reach. And five of them already have similar projects in Turkey, which is a really big proud for us, you know, that like they started similar projects with, with them leading it is amazing. So that's what we do. And we also go to the schools to do public talks, video, you know, art galleries that the kids take an active role. And yes, our focus is dolphin. But what's important for us is actually wildlife protection. So we and we do all these informative presentations, uh, exhibitions, focusing on the protection of wildlife. Wow. <laughs> I feel so inspired right now. Like, I don't even know how you do all of that. You've only been around for seven years and 500 students, you're engaging students, like, kids and fishermen and like all of this stuff like oh my gosh yeah oh my god everyone had the same level of commitment that you did oh our world is a much better place you're so inspiring so let's let's keep going down this path then so you are doing so much and you're really starting to see some positive change that's coming from your work from your NGO from all of this stuff from your perspective what does the future look like for Mediterranean's marine mammals? Do you think it, is it starting to trend in the right way? Or what, what do you think is going to happen? <laughs> yeah, yeah, so I think definitely there's more studies now, more researchers out there. So people are more curious. And now technology is quite high as well. So we can do drone surveys, you know, we can get samples from, you know, from the sea, from the animals, so much easier than in the past. And we have great data collection platforms and everything. So we don't need to do anything manually now, you know. I don't need to know a perfect mathematic to run a statistic. I just need to know a program. Uh, and so it is so much easier to do research. And I really respect a lot for those pioneers who start the work on cetaceans with such a limited resources, like with cameras, you know, I can take as many pictures as I want. But what if I had the old cameras that I need to develop them and I could only take 30 pictures at a time, you know, how do you even store them? So right now, the technology is on our side that we can actually do so much better in such a short time frame as well. And uh, even our presence is actually trusting on the, on the previous effort, previous knowledge that they told us that, okay, you know, you can do this in this way. So the historical knowledge and the, the researchers, the experts who collected the, the data actually laid the ground for us. 
And then now we are, you know, trying to build on the knowledge and uh, trying to do as much as we can. So looking at the number of research in the Mediterranean, so it's already increased in the last 10 years, which is great. So there is more research at field and there's more data coming. But this, this knowledge and the number of researchers or the institutes are highly skewed. So there is more on the West, there is less in the East. So we need to make it more homogeneous now that anyone can do uh, the research as well because it's for the benefit of nature more than the personal. So I think this is really important that the number is actually increasing but also the number of human activities are increasing too. So the marine traffic is not the same in 1970s to 2022, you know, it's like tripled. Uh, and Mediterranean Sea is actually known one of the most busiest waterway of the world as well. So that's, and it's getting increasing too. In the past, we were on the coastal, but now we have the offshore pressure in our waters, in the deep sea waters, which we have no idea. Because deep seas, we know nothing. So right. they are destroying without realizing what's even under. So like considering the number of threats and number of knowledge, we still have a lot of room to improve. But I don't want to look at it all pessimistic because it's always good to trust in future. And I think hopefully we see the, we see the power of nature. We got isolated in two, three years in our home. We couldn't even go out. We couldn't do anything. So hopefully this gave us the warning sign that if we don't change, the nature is going to have the tool of it. Climate change, no one was believing in climate change, even though it's not something that you should believe or not, it's science. <laughs> now we see, we, have, we, see the, we see its effect already, which is happening quicker than ever. So... Hopefully, we will get the measures that needs to be getting on time. Otherwise, we will be too late anyway. And like, doesn't matter how we change as a, you know, as a public, the government has to be on board with us as well uh, because they make the rules. <laughs> right. And to extend that a little further, so I believe fully in action. Because yes. we can talk until we are blue in the face, but if nothing yes. happens, then, then why were we even talking? So for my next question, so the Mediterranean is a highly visited location. I can only imagine the number of tourists, the entire Mediterranean seas along all of the coastlines, the ships, the, all, all the things. So let's say that yes. somebody wants to visit the Mediterranean. Or maybe they're local and they live in a Mediterranean city or something like that, you know, along the coast. How can we, as the people, help marine mammals? Is there something in particular we can do? Maybe from like a local standpoint, maybe someone who might be in the European area or and then also um, someone who might be international that might actually have a ticket coming yeah. up here soon <laughs> to come to yeah. somewhere along the coast, you know? So what can we do as a collective to help? Yeah, I think we can always sh shop locally, you know? We don't need to go and buy our fish from big fish markets. We can actually buy it from the small scale fishery, which will help them a lot and help the marine environment a lot as well, because 
the way the fish is more environmental friendly than the big trawlers or, you know, drift nets and all those stuff. So I think what we can do is we need to know where our food is coming from. So, and this takes nothing, you know, instead of like buying from a big supermarket, you just go and in Mediterranean Sea, you can find the fish in everywhere on the coast. You know, you just need to have a little walk and then get the fish from that old man over there, which will help a lot actually if we all do this. We consume less. So right now, I, I already told this, but we are kind of greedy, you know, we want more and more and more. Nothing is enough for us. So I think we just need to be more sensible. We need to ask ourselves, do we really need this? Because the, the ecosystem is all connected. You know, what we do at the land is always end up at the sea. So even though if you think like, you know, like this t-shirt is like totally done in a factory in, on the land, the effect is actually going to be end up at the sea. So we just need to think, do we really need it? So we need to consume less. Uh, we, like I say, single-use plastic is, I think, like, come on, we should know this by now. You just get your, you know, you have your water bottle, you just fill it up. So anything is actually doable, you know, it's nothing like we don't need to, you know, cut ourselves to make the difference. It's actually simple modifications in our life that is going to make a big change on our world. And we can we can definitely do it. We we should support because you know once you're in the Mediterranean Sea, definitely you like to go out, go to a cave, dive in somewhere. But you can always choose the eco-friendly tourism because these are options. Maybe you need to pay five euro more, but that five euro is not going to hurt you. But it's going to benefit the nature a lot. So I will say just to be more aware of our actions. So whatever we do, we need to be aware of it. And we just need to, you know, if you have an option to have a sustainable tour, so you can you can choose companies that are, you know, eco-friendly. You can see if they are using lots of plastic, then don't go there, avoid them, because they're ending, that plastic is definitely ending at the sea. So anything we can change, on a day-to-day life, is going to actually have a huge impact on the animals we try to protect. And I love to give shout out to businesses that are doing things the right way, especially me professionally working in conservation travel. I really love to highlight the operators that are doing things the right way. By chance, does anybody come to mind, any businesses come to mind that you feel are really doing it the right way that if we do go over there and we should support them? Does anyone come to mind? Yes, so for example, there in Turkey we have Setur Marinas. So they are so they are they are a chain of marinas. They have they have it in Istanbul all the way to to the end of Turkey. And they are sustainable. You know, they try to do as much as they can. They try to protect the project. They try to support the project that has benefit for the marine life especially. So there are actually companies and you know economical places that also value the importance of nature awesome okay cool yeah and yeah. so just to know that there's lots 
And then also too, yeah, um, you gave a lot of really good tips too. If somebody is in another Mediterranean destination about what to look for, because there are a lot of popular places all along that area. And yeah, being on the ocean is a very popular activity. Very few people are going to the Mediterranean just to look at it. So yes, they want to experience from first hand, you know, they want to go dive. They want to... I don't know, smoke out trip, but they should be they should be avoiding the boats that have high music, you know, the and it's so easy to spot. So it really doesn't need anything. You just need to walk in the marina or the port for a night before and you see which boats are noisy, you see which ones have, have more respectful manners, and you just need to prefer them. It shouldn't be just, I understand the importance of the budget, but if you are traveling, it means that you you save some, and it's important that the world is also benefiting from it too. So do not worry about the five euro you pay extra, because there is actually, that means a lot. It doesn't mean that much for the bucket, but it means a lot for the nature. So I would say always choose the environmental friendly companies and always think, and be aware of what you are consuming, what you are doing. And and that will be and if if I do that, it won't change much, but if we all do it, that it will definitely change a lot. And also because Mediterranean is really nice wildlife, you know, on the terrestrial world, on marine realm. It's all beautiful. You can always experience something nice. If you are going out having a walk in a forest, Get a bag with you and just get the plastic you see around. You know, it's not going to drop your jewelry out. It's nice that you are helping out on your time of travel. And if you are like, so I would strongly say avoid any kind of views. You know, this could be, I don't know, nothing on the land, nothing at the sea. Because they are basically a captivity for the animals who has no guilt, no fault that they're actually in those prisons. And if your kid want to see wildlife, just take them out for a walk because they will definitely experience that. I'm a single mom. I have my seven years old boy with me everywhere. And wherever I go, we just see wildlife. You know, we don't need to go to the zoo for wildlife. It's just that. You just need to have a binocular and that's it. So instead of buying a ticket for dolphin park or a zoo, just get a binocular for your kids. And take take that out and experience the wildlife from first hand. Yeah, and as this series has come to show, is that Europe has some pretty spectacular national parks and protected areas as well. So there's plenty of places to go take a whole day trip, but both a watery day trip or a mountain day trip or a forest day trip. There are a lot of beautiful natural areas, which this series has really brought to light that there is such spectacular wildlife all over the European continent and it needs it needs more of a spotlight to be like this is a wild destination it, we just have to go a little bit out of our way to find it and it's, yeah. not the, it's not the ones that you're seeing you know blasted you know like King's Landing in Croatia you know that's a beautiful yeah. location don't get me wrong but yeah. also did you know that there's like links not too far away. There's wolves, there's bears. There's all of this yeah. beautiful stuff in the water right there and all the work that you're doing. There's so much 
good wildlife everywhere. So you can make a wild trip as well as drinking your amazing wine and olive oil and all the amazing food that I'm currently thinking about right this moment. (laughs) (laughs) So let's switch the focus a little bit and let's switch to you if you don't mind. So you have mentioned some unbelievable things that you have done and this great organization and all of this fantastic impact that you're having. But as all of us know in this field, it is not all sexy. I'm sure that you have had some really hard days where you probably wanted to fold in the towel and just say, F it, I'm done. (laughs) I'm ready to laugh because I'm sure that's happened on multiple occasions. So would you mind, would, would you be open to possibly sharing maybe some difficult things that you've experienced and maybe how you overcame them? Or even if there's something difficult you're going through right now, but anything that you would be willing to share along your amazing journey, what have you had to get through? Yeah, so I think the, the animal part of it is the easiest part. You know, go on the field, get to the top, enjoy the, enjoy the sunset, sunrise, watch the animals and get the information that's important. It's actually the easiest and the best part. So even though if we spend like a month in at the, every season, I enjoy every second of it. And yes, you get tired, you don't sleep throughout the day, you know, we work like two hours on, two hours off, so you don't have like six hours full stop sleep. It is still comes with, because you are full with adrenaline, you are like, what are we going to see next? What's going to happen now? So it's always like, you know, full on, and, and it's good. I like it. So the field part is, I think, just the ice cream of it. But when you are working, because the data you collect has to go to somewhere, you know, you need to convince the decision makers, they may not be on the same line with you because their importance could be something else than what you think is important. So the advocacy of the, the, the project and result is really tough. And for me, that's the hardest part actually to try to convince people that this is important because I don't think it needs any more convincing. You know, it's like, it's out there, it's important. Why do I need to convince anyone still? But we do. So this is a tough part, working with the, trying to work with the decision makers, trying to convince them this is important, you know, and your your job is not just to just be an economical benefit, but it also has to be the benefit of the of the animals that's living in this country or its waters too. And some of them are amazing, you know, they try to help you as much as they can. But politics is a tough subject, I have no idea. And and it's difficult as well. Because if you're a researcher, you have nothing to do with politics. You are totally free of it. But then unfortunately it always gets attached and you are like, wait, you know <laughs> what am I doing has nothing to do with this political situation right now I just want to protect what's left to me and I want to protect it for my future generation as well I want them to enjoy the nature as much as I can so this is tough and uh, as I told you so we are working in location that's highly male dominated so woman is still is like a I wouldn't say a piece of object but they still feel like you don't belong there. Go have babies at home, you know? So to break this culture is really, really tough. Like 
you want to put 10 step extra because you need to convince the people that you know, yes, you're a woman and you're proud of it and you can do whatever they do as well, but it takes extra energy. So this is also a little bit tough for us to carry on the work because it's like, it's, you know, you, you get the prejudgment immediately you're a female and it's not nice. Uh, the other thing that is actually more frustrating for us is, yes, you know, uh, we are working in, in the countries that is no previous knowledge or limited resources, but when, when you see the critics from a similar researcher, but coming from the Western countries, it's quite tough, you know, because you need to get reunited, doesn't matter which culture you are, which religion you are, and come on, you're a scientist, you should be way over this, you know, doesn't matter your country, your religion has nothing to do with this. But this happens a lot. So, for example, when I get invited for conferences, a couple of years ago, I was invited to this conference in Canada, and I was going to have a, have a talk about my project in Turkey, and I couldn't get a visa. They, they declined my visa application, and they told me that I'm lying. And I'm like, you know, you work in an embassy, so you should be, you know, educated enough. How could you think I'm lying? Do you have any proof? Show me the proof that I'm lying. You know, you cannot just accuse me on something. So coming from difficult countries like this, people have this mindset, okay, she's Turkish, you know. For some reason, this is not good. I don't know why. And then they automatically, you need to struggle a lot to get somewhere because it's difficult to prove yourself that you're actually, you know, doing what's important to do. So I was in another conference a couple of years ago in, uh, in Greece, and then we were talking about why Eastern Mediterranean Sea is not studied, why there is no researchers in the area, you know, which they were right. But then the conference is like 500 euro to attend. And you know, euro is expensive for us. So you cannot just judge a people uh, by thinking they're not doing it because they don't want to do it. Maybe they have other stories. Maybe it's limited resources, limited knowledge. Because what I learned, I learned it myself. You know, I need to teach it to myself, all the methodology I learned. No one, no one came and teach me that you do like this, you do like that. So, of course, uh, I had a great mentor when I was doing my PhD. But to learn how to analyze my data, I have to learn it from scratch. But in Europe or in other countries, you can have, uh, you know, like previous, you can have a department on statistics that they will teach it to you. So you need to, you, your skin gets tough. <laughs> because you just need to, you know that you need to do this alone. And uh, it is just important that people should, the countries or religions are in the mind, you know, it has no place in science. So we just need to remind ourselves that, you know, the country where the person is coming means nothing. It's, you just look at the knowledge, not where they were born. So this was also really tough as well, because you always need to put 10 steps more than any other researcher to do the same exact thing. Mm. Whew, with all of those, I'm sure you're dealing with this almost on a daily basis. Yeah. So. 
Thank God you're passionate because I'm sure there's some days where that would, for a lot of people, if, if that strong, strong, strong passion wasn't there, they would probably just give in because that sounds really stressful. <laughs> yeah, it is. And you know, like, because we have like, we are all on certain level, you know, if I want to get into a university, but what if everyone leaves these locations for a for a, a better lifestyle, easier living conditions, and you know, higher resources. If everyone lives, who's going to stay and do the work that needs to be done? So that's why I think not only me, you know, there's so many resources that I know who goes through the same struggle as I, that like, you know, coming from a developing country, being a woman, trying to, I'm trying to be a mom at the same time as well, you know, so I have other responsibilities too, but which is actually motivating me even more because I have a son that I need to be an example. So I'm, I'm not a quitter, so I just carry on and I am really passionate of, and I think what am I doing is right. So I'm not thinking to leave it, you know, and I just do what I can do the best and hopefully there will be other people joining me in and, you know, like I'm going to say fight, but I mean something more peaceful, mm-hmm. fighting with me on the idea, on the goals that I have in mind, not for myself, but for the pure uh, benefit of the wildlife. Because all our, you know, survival depends on it, nothing else. <laughs> completely agree (laughs) (laughs) just even yesterday like it's it's I mean I think that just people in this field I don't know how or why we develop such a strong capacity to deal with this stuff but it's true like at the end of yesterday I was having a really bad day and I'm like I'm gonna go get a bottle of wine and I'm going to get a cookie and I'm just going to do all these things to make myself feel better. And then tomorrow I will be ready to go again. And then you just have to do that. You just have to wipe it all away. Act like that whole shit day didn't happen and take the next day on because I mean, how else are we going to continue on? Yeah. We we all have the same traits. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) There's good days and there's bad days. And that is totally fine because we all, no matter what our titles say, no matter what our resume says, our pedigree, anything, we all have good days and we all have bad days and we all have to figure out how to get through them. And I guess that's, that, that leads me to my next question. So I always love to ask this as well to everyone that comes on, what piece of advice would you like to share with anyone listening? Yeah, uh, working in wildlife is not easy. So the animal part of it or the nature part of it is the easiest one. You know, you just get in and hopefully you love what you are doing. So the difficulties in the field is not going to let you give up. You carry on. But we need to be more more patient, you know. And we should what I see is we are, we quit so easy. We give up really easily as well. So... Because I feel like the light at the end of the tunnel is always there. We just need to keep going. You know, from the Nemo, it says, let's keep swimming, let's keep yeah. swimming. <laughs> so I say, let's keep going. <laughs> so the difficulties are just, it's not like it shouldn't be something for you to give up. It should be something to carry on. It's your challenge to overtake. 
And and we are not lonely, you know, I'm not the one who's doing this alone. There I know that there's so many other resources researchers who are struggling as much as I and we are there, all of us. And I give my hand to anyone who asks for help. And anyone that I ask for help is also giving their hand to me too. So we should just keep the curiosity in our hearts. So we shouldn't give up being a child because I think they have they are smartest. So we should watch them and remember how was it to be a child, how important to be curious. And you know, we all have different IQ. And it who cares, you know, like you might be smarter than I. Maybe I need to read 20 times to understand what's written there. This is not important. We we can learn it eventually. What's important is how passionate we are and how much we are willing to do this. And if we have enough love in our heart, in our mind, then I think it's, it always works out at the end. We just shouldn't quit too easy. Yes. Just keep going, just like you said. Let's keep just going. Like we're yes. Finding Nemo. Just keep going. So let's let's. I love this. Is such a fun question, and I think it's a really just good way to start to get towards the end of the interview. Do you have any particular crazy stories from your time in the field? Like, what's the first story when I say that that pops in your head? That's like, oh, there was this one time. You're not going to believe it. <laughs> so this wasn't with whales or dolphins it was with gorillas actually oh well can yes be, please can, can be with them <laughs> yeah so, so back then i was a student and i was trying to help this amazing phd student and so we were following this gorilla to learn from their vocal behavior and basically we are living in a jungle and getting the data you know writing it down and everything so i was back on this uh, silverback and you know, the animals are really gentle and smooth and they know how to move on, on in a forest. And I am normally really clumsy anyway. And with, with trees coming out from everywhere, so it's already tough to walk. So I was just trying to follow the animal and these animals are really used to our presence. But what happened, because it was raining, I just flipped and then I fell. But when I fell, I was like, ah, screaming. And then this, the male gorilla got really scared and he jumped on me. He's like 600 kilo, you know, really oh big, really tough. Yes. And I was right under it. And I was like, I got paralyzed, I think. Because normally you shouldn't scream, you shouldn't do anything. So I was doing everything I shouldn't do anyway. <laughs> uh, because my panic got it over me. And then I still remember the eyes, the brown eyes looking from me from the top and looking at it like, you know, you humans are humans. You can't even walk. So, so uh, he was just chewing a grass and looking at my face. If he, if he just sits on me, I'm dead. You know, he's so heavy. But he was so gentle. He knew how fragile I was. And he just moved over me and he put his back on my clumsy body that was lying on the ground and he just ignored my presence. You know, he just carried on eating. So even though they're so big and so strong, they can break trees, you know, with a one flap, flap. Still, the animal knew that if he sit on me, I will die. 
So he was so gently moved to the side and really, you know, give me that look of be smart. You know? <laughs> yeah. And then, yes, and then nothing happened. I was so, so amazing and spiritual to have that moment of this, you know, hairy being and non-hairy monkey uh, being there and, you know, could communicate with the body with no words. And he just let me go. It was beautiful. Wow, that gave me goosebumps. That's crazy. And in our, in our last survey, so we got this part of sperm whales. So we have social units in Turkey, which means that we have the females, juveniles, and the, the cows, the babies in the group as well. So we were drifting. We turned off the engine because we didn't want to provide any other noise for the animals. We were drifting and a little baby popped up on the surface. It was so small, you know, a newborn. And then we were like, okay, we just should, because the mom is uh, foraging deep in the sea in like 1,000 meter depth, the babies cannot go down. They cannot hold their breath that long. So they just hang on the surface until the mom comes back. So, but the newborn started to send signals, you know, it's like, come and help, come and help, I think. And then the mom, like, really made a big breaching on the side just to scare us out, you know, because uh, the mom thought that we were doing something bad, but mm-hmm. we were just off and drifting and the baby popped up right next to us. And then it was so emotional to see how the mother was hurrying to the newborn to the side. So the mom put herself between our bones and the baby that... So she was guarding the baby for months, you know. It was like so, so emotional to see. It was so sad to realize that how much they get scared from us. It's like because we did too much damage for the animals. And these are smart. They can push it to each other. That they know that if there's a present, and they were hunted in the past. Right. So sperm whales were one of the highly hunted species in the whale hunting time. And they know that they have the memory that, you know, they need to be aware of it. So that was also really, really sad to see, even though our engine was totally off, that they thought we will harm the baby, hmm. which, which makes sense. I will be scared from seeing another human approaching me as well. <laughs> yeah, just like quietly hanging out near my child. Yeah. <laughs> I can understand yeah, <laughs> the mother's sentiment. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, what is that? Yeah, and obviously, I'm, I'm sure if that dolphin was old enough to reproduce, that she probably has seen some good and some bad stuff with. Yes. Yes. So she had every reason to be scared when her little baby was calling. So yeah, yeah, yeah. We immediately left the area once we see the mom is approaching and. She was really panicked that something will happen to the baby. Mm-hmm. But it's just, yes, because we are in everywhere, you know, they they just developed this defense mechanism. Luckily, they did, because there is also harm outside, too. We were there just for the research, but you never know what will be the next boat doing. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Island, this has been absolutely so much fun. I feel like I could talk to you for 
I don't even know like the next two hours <laughs> you everything you do and getting into some really crazy stories but I want to have the opportunity to ask if somebody wants to get a hold of you and follow your research and your organization everything how can somebody find you and yeah, what you so in social media, we are DMAD for nature, so DMAD for nature. They can follow us from social media. They can send us an email, you know. We, like, every day answer our, whatever the text comes to us, we, we are always there to answer it. Our website is www.dmad.org.tr, so they can check our website as well. It's so important for us to get any kind of donations, you know, because these are the things we can keep carrying on because we don't have the resources to keep going, but our heart is full with resources. So that's why we keep going. But we need, we need budget to run all this. So any kind of donations, doesn't matter small or large, is really important. We have adapted dolphin cards. So I think these cards are like 20 euro per year, something really simple. We stand, so it's not like they are really adapting a dolphin, obviously, but it's a symbolic thing that we send them uh, information about an individual that we are following, and we send them seasonal updates of where the individual is, how she is or he is up to, so they get informed about their dolphin in the Mediterranean Sea or the whale in the Mediterranean Sea as well. So not only they get informed, they also support our project as well. So yeah, this is all that pops to my mind. But most important is if they're in the Mediterranean Sea, if they're traveling to the Mediterranean Sea, they just need to be aware of their action. We all need to be aware of all our individual action and what is the benefit and cost of our action to the nature because our it's mother nature. We call it Mother Nature for a reason. <laughs> yes. Well, again, Alan, thank you so much for spending your evening, my morning <laughs> together. Yeah. I hope that I hope that one day I have the privilege to see you doing what you do in the Mediterranean Sea and then maybe even sharing it with everybody else. So again, thank you for your time. I'm so grateful to know you. Uh, thank you so much for having an interest for this tiny little spot on the world and, you know, helping me to share this information, share this knowledge with, with everyone around. This was, this was amazing for me as well. Thank you. Ellen is seriously such an inspirational woman. I can't imagine everything she's faced, and yet she's still trucking along and making a huge impact for whales and dolphins in the Mediterranean. If you're interested in learning more about DMAD or possibly even joining one of their research vessels, be sure to check out today's show notes for links to the organization and science opportunities. If you have a specific question you'd like to discuss about today's topic, head on over to the Rewildology YouTube channel and submit your question in the comments section of today's episode. Some of you have reached out and asked how you can support the show. Well, I'm happy to share that there are several ways to do so. Some zero-cost ways include subscribing to the podcast on your favorite streaming app, leaving a rating and review to boost the algorithm, which will present the podcast to more listeners, 
signing up for the weekly Rewildology newsletter at Rewildology.com, subscribing to the Rewildology YouTube channel, and following the show on your favorite social media app. If you'd like to financially support the show and help us keep these stories on the airwaves, consider making a monetary donation at Rewildology.com or purchase a piece of swag to show off your Rewildology love. At least 10% of proceeds from this podcast will be donated to our conservation partners. I'd also like to extend a special thanks to Heather Valley, the show's audio and video producer, for making the show sound and look awesome, and Focusrite for powering the podcast's sound. If you'd like to see the Focusrite gear we use to record the show, head on over to rewildaudio.com and check out Nature Podcasting under the Resources tab. Until next time, friends, together we'll rewild the planet. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet. <laughs>